Hello, this is Unheard Cuts from Speaking of Faith. I'm Trent Gillis, online editor of the program. For the show Days of Awe, Krista interviewed Sharon Browse, a conservative rabbi in L.A. who was part of a Jewish spiritual renaissance. Listening to the raw interview, we were captivated by her energy. She speaks fast, though, and we wanted to keep that sense of spontaneity while allowing the listener to ponder some of her more profound thoughts about the High Holy Days. We'd like you to have that same access and hear what we did in the studio. This conversation took place on August 14, 2007, via an ISDN line, with Christian Studio at Minnesota Public Radio and Sharon Browse at NPR West in L.A. We do get to have a real conversation because it's not live and we get to um, edit it later. And so it doesn't have to be linear. You know, we'll just see where it goes. And I hope we'll, we'll be surprised. Um, okay. But my, my thought is um, you have to imagine, you know, our listeners, there will be devout Jewish listeners out there, but there will also be plenty of people um, who come from many other traditions or you know, are Jewish but not practicing. And um, I think what I'd like to do um, is just start by really having you kind of talk me through and walk me through the Days of Awe um, rituals and some of the ideas and the readings. You know, not, not obviously the whole thing, but just high points and what's important to you. And, I mean, I have some specific questions and, and some ideas about where we want to start and where we want to go. And out of that, we'll just start also having a conversation about what it means and what it means to modern people. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. Sure. That's, that's great. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, I'm interested in big ideas and high theology and also, and I think you do this as a rabbi, so this is not going to be a stretch for you, just always linking that back to human experience and real life and and I want to encourage you to speak for yourself as well as as a rabbi but I think you know that okay. so <laughs> okay thank you for saying all right okay um, I'll try I'm a, I'm a little nervous all right well, well yeah <laughs> we'll see you it can, might take a few minutes okay well it usually <laughs> does it often does often the first okay. few minutes we we end up um are just kind of getting Cutting. acquainted <laughs> yeah okay. so all right so let's start <clears throat> and I think um I thought maybe, I know just from reading some of what you've written, that you did not grow up in an especially observant home, and that you came to this um, as a young adult. Is that right? As a Yes. Okay. Yes. So I wondered if you might talk to me just about your um, memories of <clears throat> these high holy days, um, maybe growing up a bit, but then also how you began to experience them when you came back to taking Jewish tradition seriously, when, as you say, you fell in love with it. And kind of just, you know, and just, I'll just say this is another aside. I mean, we're really going to get at big ideas and big um, themes in Judaism, but, but kind of focused through the lens of the High Holy Days, which is a perfectly good place for them to be focused. So does sure. that make okay. sense? Sort of to, what, do you, what are your memories of really understanding what this is about? So, um, but I think actually the most, I know that you said you saw the, the map that I made. The yeah, yeah, and actually map. I have that in front of me too. Okay, so mm-hmm. I, I actually think the most important part of the map is the introduction, that just the first page, mm-hmm. um, because I, I talk a little bit about my experience with High Holy Days growing up and, and how completely irrelevant the whole experience was to 
um, to our existence as human beings and, you know, as individuals and I, as a family, as a community. Um, the liturgy was completely uninspiring for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it was the kind of it was a kind of community, I think, very re- reflective of kind of mainstream American Jewry Um not non-orthodox jewelry, but it was very pristine and distant. And the cantor and the rab, the you know, the cantor did all of the praying, and the rabbi did all of the speaking, and the congregants were spectators in right. their own religious experience. Um, and that was all that we knew growing up. And so we found ways to busy ourselves during services. Um, <laughs> we counted, we counted heads, we counted mm. light bulbs, we counted how long the shofar blasts would last. Um, we found things to, um, to do to occupy ourselves because it was treacherously long and completely uninspiring, um, for us. And so, um, and, uh, y- you know, some, I'm not sure how much to say of what no, I've written okay. here or not, yeah. but, um, but put it into your own um, words. Don't read it. Just tell me. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I yeah. mean, I just, yeah. um, I'm just trying to think of how to say this without mm-hmm. insulting the rabbi I grew up with you <laughs> terribly, but I mean, it just, it's, it seemed as though the religious life not only had nothing to do with what was going on in the world, but had nothing to do with what was going on in our own lives. And so we, we would sort of take a perfunctory break from our lives and come into this space that out of only obligation, not religious obligation, but really familial obligation, because Mm -hmm. that's what Jews were supposed to do. And Jews in my family did. And we would just sit for hours and hours in in desperate boredom, kind of waiting (laughs) um, for the service to end so Mm -hmm. that we could um, have a break fast or, you know, or go home and, um, you know, live our lives again. And, um, and so, and it wasn't for many, many years until I realized that really, um, that it didn't have to be that way, that there was more to this, um, incredibly powerful tradition, um, that, you know, the rabbis say that the Torah was handed down in fire and in fire it is to be transmitted from one generation to the next. Mm. And growing up, we had no sense that there was anything, that there was any real power or spiritual sustenance to be derived from our um, religious life. And, you know, then the, in the religious establishment, in the Jewish establishment, everyone would kind of throw their hands in the air and say, why are we losing all the young people to <laughs> to Buddhism? Or why are they all going to India to study? And um, and the reality is, I mean, sitting through torturous services for hours and hours and hours is, uh, you know, it's just not a compelling religious experience for people anymore. Um, I actually do think that there is something generational going on in the Jewish community now, yeah. which, is, uh, which is to say that um, my parents were just as uninspired as we were in services, but they still felt this kind of profound sense of familial obligation to show up. Um, But in our gen, in my generation, people don't feel um, swayed by guilt like that anymore. And, and now people would much rather, you know, take a day at the beach or go read a great novel that will really touch them in a personal way or find, develop some meditation practice or do yoga or do something else that feels really personally compelling for them. But they're not going to sit through services if they're, you know, if they're not touching them deeply in a personal way anymore. And so I I do feel that that's part of the generational shift that we're experiencing now. So tell me, when did you, when do you remember first experiencing the High Holy Days and really experiencing them as meaningful and powerful the way you lead them now? Um, well, it, it actually started with Shabbat, um, and okay. then this led to my High Holy Day experience. But I um, I went through a series of 
really um, humiliating experiences with my with in my encounter with the Jewish community when I first got to college. Um, primarily because I felt that I, I really strongly identified as a Jew, but I um, I started becoming aware um, little by little of the depth of my ignorance of my own tradition. Um, and really became exposed to the judgmentalism and the um, exclusionary nature of the, uh, you know, of many aspects of the Jewish community. And after many of these experiences, I decided that I needed to start to learn, um, primarily so that I wouldn't be humiliated anymore. I needed to know what <laughs> what my family had rejected, um, not because I ever wanted to take it on as my own practice, but because I felt that I needed to know how not to fall into the traps of ignorance anymore. Right. And also, I needed to know when the people who were kind of criticizing me were wrong, when they were making things up, and what was actually real, and I had no idea. So I started studying, and... Um, the the my the person who became my mother-in-law um, at the time this is my best friend's mother uh-huh. later on became my mother-in-law um, sent me a list of every single synagogue in New York City where I was in college and I started going week after week to one service after another and I hated all of them they were just miserable experiences either um, very traditional and completely. Um, alien to me and nobody greeted me at the door or said hello or said it looks like you don't know what's going on can I help you or you know people were moving and swaying and uh, and I just didn't understand anything that was happening or I would go into places where I actually got it but I felt completely uninspired by what was happening and I sort of felt like you know if I get it it's actually not real enough because I don't know anything yet so (laughs) it has to be a little bit more challenging than that so one Shabbat, I ended up um, walking into B'nai Jeshurun in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never heard of it before, but it was um, it was about number thirty five on my list of synagogues. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, turning to to David, my my best friend at the time, and saying to him, he was on this kind of journey with me, and saying to him, you know, this is it. If this doesn't work, I'm done with the Jewish, you know, with the Jewish journey. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to focus on, you know, my secular studies. And I sat in the back row of this um, of this church. The services were being held in a church at that time. And I just, as soon as the service started and people started singing, I just burst into tears. I felt like I felt like I had come home in some absurd way because I had never been there before. I didn't understand a word of what they were saying, but I felt like I got everything that was happening spiritually in that space. And, um, and I, I mean, I was just so stunned by the whole experience. And then um, the rabbis stopped, they, they, we stopped uh, praying and the rabbis started preaching and it was, you know, 1991, 1992. Um, and the rabbis started talking about, about AIDS and mm. I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was hearing that I was here. I was in this kind of sacred space and hearing religious leaders talk about something so relevant and so also, um, so dangerous to talk about because at that time really religious leaders weren't speaking publicly about it and they were talking about how um how homophobia and how fear of um how fear is driving people away from understanding the depths of the dimension of this great tragedy this pandemic that's you know that is occurring and that um and that we had an obligation as jews and as human beings to join in the fight against um against aids Mm. i couldn't believe what i was hearing and i was i was so stunned and they were pounding on the table and speaking with such passion such ferocious passion um and then everyone started singing again and they actually grabbed hands and started dancing and i thought (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god, I get it now. Like that's what that's why this is feels so real to me because it's actually about something and the things that I believe are most, you know, are impacting our world are actually um, part and parcel of the religious experience in this place. And it was a moment of a, a, an absolutely revelatory moment for me. Hmm. Um, and I started going back every single week. And, um, and this, you know, this was really a formative experience um, And this was, experience now, B'nai Desharan is, um, is a quite a famous congregation these days, right? And they had had this tremendous yeah. growth and are part of what many people are calling a Jewish spiritual renaissance. And so it, I think when they had moved into that church, they'd outgrown their other space, right? So they were... Well, the the, the synagogue uh, roof actually oh, fell right, in right. one had, morning. Yeah, yeah. And then so they, they were offered to use space in a church a couple of blocks away. Mm-hmm. And by the time the synagogue was repaired, the community had doubled or tripled in size. And so they couldn't even move back into okay, theirs. And, I mean, so was. now they use yeah. the synagogue... Occasionally, they have simultaneous, they have concurrent services happening. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, I mean, I had never heard of it because I really wasn't part of the Jewish conversation at all. And so, um, for me, it was so startling and it, it is so absolutely revolutionary. I mean, it's completely different from the experience in any other hmm. place. And so, I mean, I'd been to dozens and dozens of synagogues and never experienced anything like this. So, um, so th- this kind of awakened me to what. Um, to what's actually possible in the religious life and what's possible in a spiritual community, right. um, which, n- I mean, now I believe, it, you know, as I sort of try to craft a high holy day experience for my own community, um, this is, um, I, now I believe that, that this is absolutely our obligation to strive for this um, in every experience that we um, that we create for the community, but I understand, and, and I actually say to people all the time, you know, if if services feel the way my services felt growing up, I hope you'll go to a movie instead of coming here because, I mean, just the the <laughs> because there are better things for us to be doing with our time than to be sort of forcing ourselves to sit through something that's just treacherous. And right. so, what I want to do is kind of awaken the the spirit to what's possible, both you know, for us as individual human beings, and also you know, for us as a Jewish community, and for the whole world and what what do we want the world to look like and what are we doing about it and if that kind of conversation is not um is not being provoked by the experience of being in services so then i don't know what we're actually doing there because it doesn't it doesn't serve anyone's uh purpose to to just be sitting through something for two hours and then leave right so so i mean here are some here's some of the language that um that you'll find in kind of classic or, or formal um, introductions t- about the High Holy Days. You know that this is a time of solemn rejoicing. That it is um, evokes a fear of judgment coupled with confidence of atonement. And I think you know those words themselves, um, which are so central to the High Holy Days, don't evoke what you're describing <laughs> about what you what you value in worship in modern years. Do you know what I mean? And maybe it's what right. we've done with words like that or with the with the ideas behind them. I mean, so right. yeah, how do you, how do you how do you think about that? <laughs> a couple of things. Yeah. I mean, one for as alienated as, as people are by the Hebrew in the um, in the prayer book in um, you know in either the Sidur or the the Machzor, the prayer book that we use for our Holy Days, often the English is far worse than the Hebrew because mm-hmm. using words like that um, that don't res- you know don't they resonate don't, for no. many of us, it just makes it feel even more alien. And so at least the Hebrew, you know that you don't know it, and so there's some kind of air of mystery <laughs> okay. to it. Yeah, but language like that. Um, I mean, I, I'll share with you an experience that we had our first year at High Holy Days. Our com- we started our community um, just three months before High Holy Days, and so the when first was, year how long ago was that? That was two thousand four. Three. Okay. Year, it's been three okay. years now. All right. 
So um, our first year at High Holy Days, I, I spoke about, I felt that everyone walked into Yom Kippur expecting this, like as if they're supposed to be sad, as if it's kind of almost a day of mourning yeah. um, and, and real suffering and anguish. And that's not the way I understand what High Holy Days are about. I said, this is a moment in which we celebrate the possibility of transformation, the possibility that every single one of us can be recreated, that we can allow ourselves to become everything that we want to be in the world in which we identify that we have a real purpose and meaning in the world and that we can we can de- redirect our lives so that we're actually um so that we're actually responsively going after those priorities instead of you know following uh, you know whatever the um the the issue of you know whatever the needs of the day are instead of being bogged down by our carpooling schedules you know we actually have the capacity to radically transform the way that we understand our lives and the world so really this is a moment of celebration and after i said this i kind of pre- you know preached this spontaneous thing about celebration um so so people just stood up and started dancing in the room. And I thought, oh, this is really so beautiful. I mean, we'd had a few Shabbos services before and people had danced a little bit. But they, I mean, the whole room got up. There were, you know, 400 people there the first year. Yeah. And they started dancing and dancing. And we were, you know, we were singing. Um, so there's and, music. And then, there was... Well, yeah, but we don't use musical instruments in our community. So oh. um, so this is part of the thing. I couldn't control it because it was just my voice. And so I thought, well, I'll let them, you know, dan- they clearly need to dance. We'll dance for three or four minutes, but still it's Yom Kippur. So right. we have to, you know, <laughs> So this was on Yom Kippur of- that you said this? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is on, this is on, uh, on Kol Nidre. It's the, you know, oh, er- it's the evening Kol of Nidre. Yom The beginning of Yom Kippur. It's right. a, it really is. A, it is a serious time. Uh, very serious. But I was preaching celebration. Yeah. So people started celebrating the possibility of transformation. And I was trying after a couple of minutes with my voice to kind of end the singing and dancing so that it could come back to the seriousness of Yom Kippur. But people kept dancing and I realized it was out of my hands. For 45 minutes, people danced around that room and it was the most, it was this ecstatic, extraordinarily exquisite moment (laughs) where I just realized that, I mean, this is where people's hearts were. Like something had been opened up in them and kind of released the possibility of not only um, transforming the self, but transforming their whole perception of what Judaism was, what synagogue was supposed to feel like. And it was it was incredible. And I just I mean, I I was so grateful that I didn't have the power to shut it off, you know, (laughs) afterwards in retrospect. You know, and I'm thinking of Kol Nidre is associated with melody and with, you know, this very beautiful renditions of that. I mean, by Max Bruch, I'm thinking, but they're they're quite formal. I mean, I don't see people dancing to that. Well, this was at the end of the service. (laughs) No. and, And I mean, I think part of this is. Um, I think part of the challenge of High Holy Days is to mm-hmm. um, to allow people to really, you know, for for a moment, and we, you know, at some at some point during the hours and hours and hours that we spend really trying to focus our hearts and our minds over High Holy Days, to 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 bring people to one momentary understanding of the fragility of life, um, of the recognition that they might not be here next year at this time and I might not be here next year at this time and the people they love most in the world might not be here because we um, we don't we can't control human existence we have no idea who will live and who will die in a very real sense not just who's going to have a, a year full of joy and who's going to feel very you know who's going to have a, a, a year of struggle right. but really we don't know who will live and who will die and to to kind of push people to confront that excruciating reality for just a moment and then to dance their way out of that, to to take to, to sort of hold in their hands at one moment the utter seriousness and really the pain of that, 
um, for, for all people who love to think about the people they love most and knowing that they or the people they love might not be here next year is excruciating. But to take that and to leave with a commitment to live a life um, in which in, in, in a life in which they're able to transform themselves and their relationships and the world, um, knowing that every day they have might be their last. But to really leave with a sense of commitment and a sense of purpose, that's something to dance about, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's both it's sort of living in both of those places at once, both recognizing that the tragedies that have struck, you know, us as individuals, as communities, you know, in as a nation, um, as a world, to sort of be very present to the um to the the reality of of loss and grief and death, and then to leave to to sort of holding that to be able to dance and, and to, to be able to affirm the possibility of love and renewed life and renewed sense of purpose. That's, I think, what the great challenge is of High Holy Days. And, I mean, it is deeply countercultural because our culture beats back that knowledge and that awareness, right? Or or would think about dancing your way out of it or, right, dancing as a way to live despite it. But, I mean, you're talking about celebrating because of it. I mean, it's celebrating life in a different way because you've fully faced those realities of life. That's right. And I think that I think there are multiple responses to kind of being confronted with the reality of more of one's mortality mm-hmm. and, and also of the mortality of the people we love. I think, you know, many people live in denial that denial is a real response to mortality. Yeah. I think paralysis is a response, you know, kind of just not being able to get out of bed because of the terror of what has happened or what could happen. Um, I think hedonism is a response. And I'll always remember, I I was living in New York City when September 11th happened. And um, the sounds that I heard, there was a little bar called the Underground right at the corner of of my block on the Upper West Side. And the sounds that I heard coming out of the bar that night on September 11th, 2001, it was just, it was mind-blowing. It was like screaming, like joy and laughter and dancing. Mm. And it was almost this kind of like ultimate rejection of the reality of what had happened. I mean, there was, we smelled the smoke in our apartment mm-hmm. and there were ashes on our windowsill and people were like literally like, you know, just in drunken revelry, which is I'm I think- Drowning you know, that out. Exactly. Uh And I think, you know, I think that is also one response. And our tradition says, um, don't ignore the reality because these, you know, these kind of paths of response to mortality are so all of them are so um, debilitating. So it says, don't don't ignore um, the reality Um, and don't and and don't uh, the tradition doesn't say don't be afraid. It says be afraid, but do something with your fear. Right. Do, hmm. do something productive in the world with your fear. And there's this incredible prayer that we say on High Holy Days called Unatana Tokef, which is, um, you know, this famous prayer written by Reb Amnon of Mainz, where he says, you know, who will live and who will die, who by fire, um, who by water. It goes through all of the possible ways that we might achieve our demise over the course of the year. Um, and many commentators try to read into this prayer some kind of beautiful poetic understanding of what how to live you know how to live a life that will be really full of life who will really be alive this year and who will kind of live a spiritual death this year but i i take this prayer very literally i mean and i think rev amnon of mines who who said this only days before his death he was a a young rabbi who was 
beaten and tortured brutally and died almost immediately after reciting this prayer spontaneously, I think he was saying, I had no idea that it would be me. And now it's me. And every one of you needs to focus on, you know, take, take the opportunity to realize it could be you next. And so what do you do with it? And he says that there are three things. He says, tshuva tzvila utztaka. So tshuva, this the, the, you know, really the um, the watchword of the whole High Holy Day season, the possibility of utter transformation of self, that we can it, take... It is um, also translated as repentance, is that right? Yes, okay. right. Mm-hmm. Repentance, which again is one of those One English of those dry words English that, words, yeah. <laughs> right, like, what does that mean? Even, yeah. I mean, and by the way, there's some words that, you know, just they feel meaningless to us just because they're not words that we use often. There are other words that feel to many Jews, they just, they feel like Christian words. Right. And so we don't really understand, you know, we of, don't really resonate to yeah, them. Yeah, and that's true. It's a Christian word, but I'm thinking also, I'm just I'm thinking of a little bit I learned about Hebrew that just doesn't, isn't the... That word in Hebrew, um, quite visual, like stopping in your tracks and turning around the other direction or something. That's like exactly that. what it is. Right. It's, it's return. It's literally returning to a right uh-huh. path. And I mean, the whole Jewish notion of um, of sin is you've just gone astray and you can turn it around. And, you know, the principle, the, the fundamental principle of, of tshuva um, of return is that um, human beings have free will. We have the capacity um, to make great mistakes, and we have the capacity to turn to turn it around. And there's a very there are very um, clear prescriptions laid out for how you turn it around. What do you What do you actually need to do um, to to repair something when there's been a breach in a relationship, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with your mother, in your relationship with you know with your partner? How How do you make repair? How do you t- actually turn it around? And of course, there's certain things that there is no full tshuva that can be affected for. Um, because the damage is irreparable, things like murder um, and and sexual assault and some kinds of public humiliation mm-hmm. that it's impossible to ever um, it's impossible to ever fully turn back. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, there are there are still certain things that you can do, but you can't affect full chuva. But for everything else, our tradition says it's possible to turn your life around, to mm-hmm. really transform the way that you're living and to make amends um, in a way that will heal the breach that you've caused in the, in the relationship, either, you know, with yourself, with God, with, the, with someone in the community, with the world. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's really, I think, also the ultimate challenge of, um, of Rosh Hashanah, which is, we call it, you know, it's, we, in the prayers we say, Hayom Harat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. And Rosh Hashanah is this, um, it's this moment in which we celebrate the creation of the world, which m- meant nothing to me, you know, when I heard that right. growing up. Is right. the, today we celebrate the creation of the world. That means nothing. Right. But what does mean something to me is the fact that each one of us participates in creation every single day when we make a choice about how we want to live in the world. And we have the capacity and the opportunity to recreate ourselves on a daily basis, you know, based on the choices that we make about our lives and how we want to live. And then, and and then that, you know, there, and there are ways in the liturgy and in the religious practice, in Jewish religious practice, in which every single day we strive to kind of identify the things that need to be um, transformed in our lives. But the tradition also gets that, um, that it's not enough to um to you know the doing it every day uh, sort of it, it might lose some of its power and so we need to have this you know this 
moment in time that's part of the calendrical cycle that's you know sort of built into the calendar kind of dramatic high holy days exactly in which we stop stops. everything right and i mean even you know even many you know secular jews or people who don't identify at all will still stop and kind of recognize it's rosh hashanah or it's yom kippur and we have this shofar which blasts in our ears and it's not supposed to be beautiful and melodious it's supposed to really wake you up and hmm. say this is the moment for you to wake up and recreate yourself you have the capacity to be whatever you want to be in the world look at yourself are you the mother you want to be are you the friend you want to be are you the american you want to be are you the human being that you want to be in the world and if you're not you can't blame that on anyone else because right now you have the capacity you have the opportunity to utterly transform your life Hmm. oh this is great um I wasn't speaking too fast. <laughs> no, I, or the, you and I are a lot alike. You're allowed okay. to speak fast. Um, okay. Okay. Here, so that's what I want to get into that a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how this then manifests itself in worship. You know, what happens in these days that are set aside where everything stops. Um, and I want to. I just want to maybe mention a few pieces that really strike me, and then I also want you to throw in, you know, something that you're really passionate about. Um, okay. That you would want to talk. You want to tell somebody who's listening who knows nothing about Judaism or, or Jews who are listening. Who, you know, you just want to share this. This really matters to you. So, I'm very struck by a Kol Nidre, which sort of kicks it all off. Um, um, with this idea, well, you called this in your in your one of your sermons that you preached last year, an accounting of the soul of the Jewish people. And there's this amazing ritual that takes place, which is a, a declaration of permission to pray with transgressors. Um, that's an incredible idea. Uh, very exacting. And again, deeply countercultural. I mean, say, some, mm. say what that means. What's happening there? And why why does it start there? Yeah, it's... My sense is that a lot of what's happening in the liturgy and this incredibly rich um, and complex liturgy of High Holy Days is that the rabbis are trying to very cautiously push us to confront the parts of ourselves that we are simply not open to confronting when we walk in the door. And so it's in some ways it's very subtle what they're trying to do. But um, but listing there's the vidui, the confessional, which is always said in the plural, ashamnu bagadnu. We did this. We did this. And, and you go through. Is it right? You go through every single letter of the alphabet. Is yes. That right? Yes, that's right. And over and over and over, we do the vidui multiple times over the course of the you know over the course of the day of Yom Kippur, and and the idea is. I, I didn't do that. You know, you sort of walk in and someone gives you a list of sins that you're supposed to um, publicly state that you committed. Right. Um, and, and our kind of, as, as you said, this is intensely countercultural because all of our um, our impulse and all of the norms of society push us to deny and reject respons- responsibility for the things that we're doing wrong. You know, or I think to, you know, to get over it, to move on once. Right. And not relive mm-hmm. it every year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, go right. On, sorry, go on. And this says, we did these things. Each one of us did these things. And even if you personally didn't do it, someone in this community did it. So, what, so give me an example. So what are you saying, for example, ethical lapses, sins? I mean, what would they be? I, mean, I, I immediately go to, um, you know, to think about sort of the, the broad social and political um, 
ethical lapses that we have. I mm-hmm. mean, the fact that we um, in Los Angeles live in a city with 86,000 people sleeping on the streets. And so does that mean that I personally am responsible for making, you know, people creating homelessness? Mm-hmm. Or does that mean that I that I am responsible um, because I live in a society that allows certain people to um, to remain in positions of pr- of privilege and power and to turn a blind eye to people who ha- you know who have tremendous suffering in their life and so how can we take start to take ownership and responsibility of some of the terrible problems that are happening in our society and in our world so um, I mean it, it, it's the so it's that's the a sin of, that you would confess at Yom Kippur. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And we, I mean, and in the beginning, when you walk in the door, you're not necessarily ready to take responsibility for that. I mean, for the fact that there are, you know, 40 million people living with, a, you know, with HIV in the world, HIV AIDS. So, you know, I, how do I take that burden on myself? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the way that I, the way that I hurt my, uh, my sister's feelings, the way that I was embarrassed by my mother in the supermarket, because, you know, even though <laughs> I'm in my 30s, she can still embarrass me in the supermarket. You know, I'm sort of thinking about those things. But and I think that there's this um, there's this development there's this flow to the service in which you start by take you know sort of in the, in the beginning of Rosh Hashanah you start by acknowledging and taking responsibility for the little things that have happened in your life um, the little ways in which you've made mistakes and by the end of Yom Kippur you're just your soul is on fire because you start to recognize that it's all connected and it's not just you know the conversation that I should have had with you know with my best friend that I didn't have that led that that led her astray. It's also about, you know, this genocide in Darfur, and it's about poverty and hunger and homelessness, and it's all connected. It's all like you kind of awaken yourself or open yourself up to this much broader sense of responsibility, um, which we, I think, we protect ourselves from during most of the year because we can't, we simply can't hold all of that well, we at once without being right. paralyzed. Right. There is this paralysis. I mean, I, I, let's, you know, I think about this a lot. I think about how people in my profession, journalists, me, my fellow journalists and I, how we present people with um, these images of suffering, right, and violence and things that go wrong that, that therefore become headlines. And um, I think it's it's overwhelming for people. And it's very hard for people to make that connection when they are often just struggling to hold their lives together, right? Or to be a mm-hmm. good parent, <laughs> which feels mm-hmm. like a daily challenge. And, um, or to be a good spouse, uh, or, or just to be a good force in their community or their neighborhood, right? Or their city. It's right. very hard to connect the dots between my life and that world of pain and suffering out there. And I think often just because of the ways it comes to us, the forms in which it comes to us, it's just debilitating. So, mm-hmm. so, I, so I guess what I want to ask you is, is there something that happens when those connections are made in that liturgy, um, in that context of religious community, of Jewish community? Is there mm-hmm. some way in which people are able to live with that differently, to hold those tensions, to walk out of there, you know, and, and have an idea about how to live differently because they've made them? I hope so. And I think that that's really our job. And the way that we do that is taking people on a journey. Um, You know, we don't, I don't start off by when people come in on Erev Rosh Hashanah, you know, the the first night of Rosh Hashanah, I don't start off by saying, you know, what, 
look at you. What are you doing about the mess of the world? <laughs> you know, we start off by saying, um, you know, and I, because I see this journey that sort of takes us from, as I call it, you know, as I understand it, it's really a journey from cheshbon ha-nefesh, which is an accounting of the soul of the individual, mm-hmm. to cheshbon nefesh ha to sort of looking at the way that we are in our families, accounting of the soul of our families. Cheshbon ha-nefesh ha-am, this is by the time we get to Yom Kippur, an accounting of the soul of the Jewish people, and ultimately cheshbon nefesh ha-olam, an accounting of the soul of the whole world. And when you first start off this journey, you're not ready to think about, you know, poverty and disease and the, you know, sort of excruciating realities of the world. You first need to focus on what's going on in your own home, Mm -hmm. what's going on in your own heart. What are the ways um, in which your insecurities have paralyzed you this year? What are the ways in which your arrogance has, you know, has alienated people from you this year? What are the ways in which you haven't been the person that you need to be in the world? Um, and, you know, our rabbis acknowledge that the way to transformation of the world starts, it starts with the self. It's through the self. And so we have to um, n- not only not disregard, but be truly attentive and sincerely attentive um, to to really accounting for what's happening in our own personal lives, first, you know, first and foremost. And so we do that. We look with really we scrutinize um, what's going on in our own lives. Um, and s- by the way, sometimes it's hard to get there because people have so many barriers up. Um, they don't want to look at their own lives, and it's much easier for them to think about <laughs> to Darfur look at poverty in to- Africa. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you know, I I um, I often think about those um, matryoshka dolls, those little Russian yes. wooden dolls. Yes. And you know, I remember my my grandparents used to have these in their homes when um, when when I was a kid. I was sort of obsessed with playing with these little dolls, and you'd sort of peel away layer after layer after layer and you'd finally come to this tiny little doll in the middle um which like almost didn't even resemble the biggest doll on Mm -hmm. the outside anymore because you know it was just this tiny pure essence of doll in the middle of all of these um layers and layers of, of you know beautiful paint and gloss and i feel like that's what the experience of high holy days is about you know sort of begin by saying there is a nikuda tova there is something so pure and so good inside of you, inside of all of us, but we can't even see what it is anymore because we spend all year kind of papering over it and covering over it, either because we're too busy, because, you know, our lives and our work are too challenging, you know, or, or because we're too embarrassed of it. And we don't, you know, we're sort of ashamed mm-hmm. or embarrassed. And so we co- we cover over and we paper over and layer over it. And the and you you know you kind of walk in on on Erev Rosh Hashanah and you hear these melodies that just kind of stir the soul of even a person who's you know maybe only been to services you know in their in their early childhood and only out right. of guilt you know right. <laughs> but you hear these tunes that are only sung on High Holy Days and like layer by layer you're sort of stripped down to the core if it works you know this is what we're trying yeah. to do so in your congregation sort of, the melodies would be sung they would be human voices rather you said oh, you don't have yes. instruments right uh-huh. yeah that's uh-huh. right. Um, and so, so, and everybody sings. I mean, we just kind of open it up, like just. Mm-hmm. And I say, like, the goal of this the, of this evening and tomorrow morning and the next day of Rosh Hashanah is to peel those layers down so that we get back to that holy, pure light inside of every human being, and we can start to figure out, you know, who we are and who we want to be again. So that when we start to build out, you know, our, the coming year, we know that we're um, we're starting off in a direction that we want to go in. It's mm-hmm. kind of the denial of the snowball effect. Like you can't say, you know, kids who cheat once on a test in seventh grade become the cheaters. And it's like, that's just what happened. Like they're the kid who cheated. So then they start cheating in eighth grade and 
ninth grade and you know they're sort of stuck in this uh it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy and um and this is saying you know there is no snowball effect in judaism you right. can't say like i met you you're know, saying I the snowball this can thing. stop in its tracks and roll back exactly up the hill. okay stop it now stop it now okay. and like and be and figure out that it's like hmm. exactly what you were describing about hmm. your understanding of tshuva like just turn it around and go back up the mm. hill and take away those layers that you don't want, like unpeel those layers and actually become, you know, what you want to be again. And there's this beautiful teaching from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov who teaches about, he talks about the Nikuzatova, kind of finding that pure essence of a person, finding that point of light. And then he he says that this light can then illuminate the entire body. And, you know, most of the time, you know, we could have a body that's kind of covered in darkness, but still has that tiny pure light. And on High Holy Days, I believe we get like we sort of take away and peel off all the darkness. So it's just the light again. And mm. then the light can leave its impression on the rest of the body. So we have this kind of opportunity to start with a clean slate. Mm. Um, and, and I think that the, the way that this works, you know, liturgically also is... Um, the stories of uh, that we read from the Torah on Rosh Hashanah yes. are so interesting. I want to talk. Not... Great, that's great. That's that's where I want to go now. Okay. Yeah. Do, I wanted, do you want? To... Yeah. Let's. I mean, they are so interesting, and they're also. I mean, they're 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 amazing stories about about what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be human, right? Um, but they're all also a little bit confusing. I think I think there are there's stories that a modern person couldn't just pick up the Bible and read and know. Mm. And really say, you know, what does that mean, or isn't that isn't that very paradoxical, or doesn't it, you know, what is the point here? So, right. So, talk about that. The first day you read about the birth of Isaac, right? Yeah, you re- I mean, you mm-hmm. you read this. It's it's uh, what I find somewhat astounding is how it's it's not obvious what the rabbis were trying to do here, but it's brilliant that they chose these readings for these moments. Okay, so tell me about it's that. It's the first day of mm-hmm. Rosh Hashanah. You know, Jews who never go to synagogue all year long will show up on, you know, Rosh Hashanah morning. And, you know, this is a, um, it's a Torah portion. The, the Torah portion that it comes from has, you know, arguably two of the most famous and most profound episodes um, of, you know, of, of the entire Torah. They have um, Abraham arguing with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and where you see this real, like this mm. fierce human defiance and this sense of, you know, there's no moral ambiguity here. It's just human beings fighting for what's right in the world. And then, on, you know, on the other side of the Torah portion, um, there is this, uh, there's the Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, you know, God right, saying to Abraham, right. take your son and sacrifice him. So what do we read on Rosh Hashanah? Neither of those things. We come and we read these little stories that come in the middle, in between those two things, mm. um, which is, it's so fascinating. It's like you have all the Jews you want in the world sitting in services and you're not telling them, you know, the great major moral lessons of the Torah, but you're telling them instead, you know, about Sarah being jealous of Hagar. Yes. Um, because, you know, beca- and, and, and the way that, um, that Isaac and Ishmael fought with each other and Abraham sort of struggling, should he listen to Sarah or Hagar and needing to kick his own, you know, family out of the house. It's kind of these very small stories of dysfunction in, in, you know, in our, in in our ancestors, uh, you know, families. And so, uh, and I think it's, go ahead. Go on. Well, just, (laughs) yes, perhaps small stories of dysfunction, but, but, a family feud that is arguably at the center of some of the hardest things that are happening in the world today, right? Because Ishmael it becomes an ancestor of um, of mm-hmm. Muslims, and and that is a very puzzling story. Hagar is this Egyptian slave woman who um, Abraham has had this son with, and Sarah banishes him, and uh, and yet God does preserve 
Ishmael from death and say that he will bless him. And I mean, this is also a puzzling story, I think, in the Torah. And um, mm-hmm. how do you, I mean, how do you think about what that story says to Jews today in 2007? So, I, I mean, I, I understand it in a, it, I understand it in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on one level, it's really saying, you know, our God is not the God of the Jews. Our God is God. Mm. And, you know, Abraham was not the father of the Jewish people. Abraham was, you know, was was the father of, of Ishmael and Isaac. He didn't have only one son. He had two sons. And, you know, ultimately, like taking us back to, you know, to sort of the creation of our faith, the origin story of our faith, where we, we realize that we are in this story with other human beings in the world. So mm-hmm. our obligations in the world cannot simply cannot extend only to other Jews, which I think, by the way, is a theme that's carried through um, through the book of uh, through the reading of the book of Jonah and Yom Kippur, where it's so powerfully expressed. And oh. this is, you know, so this is the beginning of, of the high holy days and 10 days, you know, saying there are other people in the world aside from Isaac. And actually, when Ishmael was kicked out of the family, it, it was incredibly painful, even for Abraham himself. You know, yes. there are other human beings in the world. But then, on you know, on Yom Kippur, when we read the book of, of Jonah, we, you know, we hear the voice of God saying to this Jewish prophet, I don't just care about you. Go to Nineveh and tell these people that if they don't stop sinning, I'm going to destroy the, you know, I'm going to destroy their, their country. And Jonah, who just doesn't get it because he says, but I'm a Jew. I care about the Jews. And he doesn't and God, think they should be you know, saved, right? That's that's mm-hmm. right. I mean, well, first of all, he doesn't believe that it's his job to okay. engage them. Okay. He says, I don't care if you save them or don't, but that's not my job. Like, I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a Jewish prophet. Leave mm-hmm. me alone. I'm with my folks. And literally gets in a boat and tries to flee to go anywhere but to Nineveh because he just he doesn't want to engage in other people's problems. And God just tracks him down and says, no, this is what it means to be a Jew. It, mm-hmm. it means to go out and, and do the work of the world and really, you know, inspire transformation wherever you can in the Jewish community or far beyond the Jewish community. And you need to care about these human beings because they're all my children. And and Jonah, you know, this reluctant prophet then goes and, you know, and prophecies the destruction of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh are, you know, they're smarter than Jonah is because he says you're going to be destroyed. And they say, what if we transform ourselves? Then <laughs> then how could God, you know, how could God destroy us if we have transformed ourselves? And once they do affect, they make tshuva, this return. Right. And once they okay. do it, God refuses to destroy them. And then Jonah's angry at God because then Jonah says, you didn't keep your word. You, you know, you made me look like a fool. It's like a shanda for the goyim. You know, like you made me look stupid in front of the non-Jews. That's even worse than looking stupid in front of the Jews. And so Jonah just doesn't get it. Um, so this is an interesting end to it kind of it's, you know, it's kind of in some ways a mirror to the Abraham story of Rosh Hashanah. I see this all on some kind of continuum, like in the beginning, in the in the book, you know, in Rosh Hashanah, we're kind of opening up to the possibility of universalism. And by the end of Yom Kippur, we're screaming universalism. It's like, mm-hmm. no, don't go thinking that your job in the world is just to fix yourself or just to fix your family or just to fix the Jews. Mm-hmm. Your job is to go out and transform the world. Um, so I, so this is one rendering of you know, of what these Torah, Torah stories, you know, these particular Torah um, stories are doing um, on Rosh Hashanah. And the other piece of it that I also think is very powerful, um, which is not about the universalism, um, is actually, I, I think about 
um, honoring and recognizing that these small stories and the jealousies that one woman feels toward another um, and the confusion that one man feels about his, you know, his partner and his love and the and the uh, the jealousy and the the conflict between two siblings. These stories of dysfunction are our they are our stories right. that, you know, every single one of us has some kind of. Um, conflict in our families and in our homes that has shaped who we are in the world for better and for worse. And so in a way, you know, we're honoring those stories. We're saying, you know, to be a to be a Jew doesn't just mean to engage um, in the, you know, in the great, you know, mysteries of the world. And it doesn't just mean to go out with this profound, um, you know, mission to bring justice to the world. It actually means to look at what's happening in your family and to recognize what's unfair as unfair and to, you know, and to recognize the gifts as utter gifts. I mean, the fact that love is possible in times of great confusion and darkness, the fact that, you know, that human commitments to one another can help us overcome even the deepest darkness. That's something to to really honor and to recognize. So I look at Rosh Hashanah morning, um, I look at these stories as an opportunity for us to to really to to hear the absence of the big stories um, and mm-hmm. really focus mm-hmm. on the small stories in between. It's not just, how, you know, what like your your father, you know, your father died this year. There was this incredibly painful um, thing that transformed your family or you got married this year and there's this incredibly beautiful celebration. But what happened in between those things? Mm-hmm. How are you treating your partner on the day when there aren't any, you know, camera crews and families that have flown in to celebrate with you? How do you look at each other when you wake up in the morning? How do you talk to your kids when you're frustrated because you've called them down for dinner seven times and they're not coming? You know, how do we engage each other in the small stories. And I think that's incredibly important in this moment of Hayom Harat Olam. Today is the birthday of the world. We have this big mission in the world. There's something for us to do as Jews. How are you treating your family? You know, how are you talking to the people you love? You know, I have to say that while I'm listening to you talk both about about that, about, you know, how how we think about family these days and how we're able to talk about it and and also about these large themes of being Jewish and also this you know, being Jewish may be meaning that you have to be in relationship with those others. Um, I think about these the richness of Jewish tradition, and I just, you know, I mean the whole historic tradition and of Talmud, of conversation across generations, of Midrash, mm-hmm. and kind of making the story your own in every new generation. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really hear you doing that because I think the way you're reading that story of the relationship with between Isaac and Ishmael... Um, it's going to be different in the 21st century than than a, than a rabbi would have been reading it 50 years ago or let's say 60 years ago in the middle of a world of you know of the Holocaust and World War II. I mean, it does speak to our dynamics in a completely new way, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And th- I mean, that's what that's what I think the rabbis meant when they said that the Torah was given down in fire, meaning on Mount Sinai, the mountain was on fire mm. when the Torah came down. And in Torah, it has to be transmitted. And if we don't find some way to make this r- religious experience about more than just the memory of something that once touched our great, great grandparents, yeah. it's simply not going to exist anymore. And so, I mean, so what does it mean to me? And by the way, not only does it mean something different to me than it meant to my grandparents, it means something different to me this year than it meant to me last year. Right, right. And, and that's sort of the, you know, the great power of a religious tradition that's versatile enough to really sustain to sustain itself over the, over the course of many thousands of years to say, you know, the the text is the same every year, but we are different. Mm. 
Mm. And so what are, how, are, how do we approach this text with, with our own eyes? And, and what, what sustenance can we derive from this text and this liturgy and this story? Because this is our story. And the way that I experience it right now, that really is, there is something newborn every time that I encounter this text or this holiday or this piece of, you know, this piece of liturgy. You know, you wrote somewhere how you luxuriated in rabbinical school and the magic inspiration and fierce challenge of Talmud and traditional text study. And I'm just, you know, when I what I hear you, you know, what you're talking about is as a rabbi, how you take that intense study and then translate it for people who haven't had that luxury um, mm. of theological education, of rabbinical school. And I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm also something that's one of the ideas behind... Um, at Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah is that two books are open before the heavenly judge, the book of life and the book of death. I mean, those are such huge and strange images. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just throwing that out. And so, I mean, how do, do you think images like that can come to life for, um, or how do images like that come to life for modern people in Los Angeles? <laughs> right. Look, not everything works. I mean, not everything yeah. resonates. And so, and I think this is part of the beauty of really engaging in a tradition um, seriously and with an open heart. It's just like how in your own family everything doesn't always work. Right. Um, but sort of recognizing that this is mine and what works for me now might not work for me next year and what works for me next year might not work for me now. And I mean, I've had um, I've had people in my community who have been diagnosed with cancer who say, I now get for the first time what it means um, to pray to a warrior God because I want God to be fighting the cancer in my body. Huh. And I never would have thought about God that way before because I'm a pacifist, you know. And so, I mean, and there are things that happen in our lives and in the world that open us up to um, to the possibility of, you know, different interpretations of things. Um, And so so I don't take things out of the book. I I struggle with things and there are things that I scream out against. I mean, I see them and I think, oh, this, you know, this either this doesn't speak to me or this just seems wrong. But it's still in the book because next year I might get it in a different way. And I think that's kind of. It's sort of some kind of religious humility in a way to say, like, I, it doesn't work for me at all. And yet I'm going to continue to struggle with it or I'm at least going to con- continue to keep it on the page. And I had this experience, you know, in rabbinical school about every six months. And I was really in a love affair with um, with the study of Talmud and yes. rabbinic texts. And um, I, I mean, about every six months, I would come across some text that I found utterly paralyzing as a as a woman as a human being as a jew i just felt like these, this is the text i'm in love with and this is what it's saying how, how can i you know how can i deal with that and i i came to recognize those moments as incredible gifts also um because the re- the relationship with Judaism should be no different than your relationship with your you know with your partner, your spouse, <laughs> or you or find your things about them that you don't like and you have to live with. Nevertheless, that's exactly but right. Can and you, you give me an example? Can you remember an example? <laughs> yeah, sure, I can. <laughs> okay. Um, there's a um, there's a there's a story in um, in Masachet Nedarim in this tractate of Talmud. Um, that talks. It's talking about sexual relationships, and um, and it it says that um, that a husband and wife are allowed to do ultim- basically they're allowed to do whatever they want with each other sexually, which I think people found very liberating back then because it was this kind of response to, you know, the eyes of the rabbis in the bedroom saying, you know, you can't you can't do whatever you want behind closed doors. <laughs> okay. Well, the rabbis came out and said, you can. I mean, it's your you know, this is your spouse, and you can enjoy each other. That's okay. That's not heretical, and we're not an ascetic tradition. 
and um, that's permissible. So then there's um, there's a story in which a woman comes before Rav, one of the great rabbis, and says, my husband did this thing to me, and it's caused me incredible pain. And Rav says, what can I do? The Torah permits you to him. Mm. And like sort mm. of throws his hands up in the air. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, I read things like that and I think like, where is the... Like, where is the understanding of human relationships here? Like, where's the understanding of how men and women operate and how law interacts with humanity? And, you know, I sort of read things like that, even in the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, this is not a rabbinic text, but a biblical text. But, you know, the punishment for raping a, a woman um, is marrying her. That you, you your mm. <laughs> your punishment is that you need to spend eternity. You marry her, and you're not allowed to divorce her. Mm. And you know, you read things like that, and I, I read things like that, and I think, my God, you know, this tradition is so painful in some ways. And if I were writing the book, I would not have written that. I'm right. quite sure right. of it, you know. But I didn't write the book, and I'm sure if I was writing this book, I wouldn't have had the, you know, I wouldn't have been able to say. Um, I wouldn't have been able to say, um, you are not allowed to stand on your brother's blood. When someone around you is in pain, you, you know, you, mm. can, you cannot stand there and do nothing. You have an affirmative obligation to act. I mean, the, the wisdom that flows from this text comes from the same source as the, huh. as the excruciating pain that flows from it. And I feel now that that's part of being in a relationship with a, you know, with a tradition that's thousands of years old. And, and what's so powerful to me about this is because I've cried so many tears over texts like this. I feel like my tears are now part of the mix of the, you know, of the conversation mm, yeah. of, of Jews who for the past 2000 years have used these texts as their, uh, really as their sustenance. The, you know, there's an amazing, um, there's an amazing story that, um, that one of my teachers, um, D- Rabbi David Weiss Halivni, um, teaches in, in, shares in one of his books. He was, um, he's a Holocaust survivor and he was in one of the death camps and he was, he was working, um, and they came back from this day out laboring all day long, um, you know, on the verge of death and, um, from exhaustion and from hard labor and from despair. And he saw this security guard who was eating this sloppy sandwich in a wrapper and it was it was wrapped in this piece of paper and he couldn't take his eyes off it because he recognized that there were Hebrew letters written on the paper. <sighs> and so he found out that all the prisoners kind of gathered around and they they bri- they bribed they um not bribed they um what's it called they so they traded their um you, you know their food for the day in order to get this piece of sloppy paper that was holding together this sandwich mm-hmm. and he gave it to them and they dried it out and it turned out to be a piece of talmud and i guess one of the <sighs> ways that that you know the jews were degraded was they would take our holy texts and use them in really degree you know like as yeah. you know for a variety of reasons and so they took this piece of talmud and he t- describes how the men in the bunker used to sit together every night when they'd come home from the field and just read this piece piece of Talmud together and it it saved their lives hmm. like just looking at this text made them feel like human beings again and made them feel like they were part of a story that was you know thousands of years long and wouldn't die with them it would continue somehow beyond them um, and I think about that often and I think about the voices that were that have been a part of that story and the voices like mine you know <laughs> women's voices that weren't right. part of those right. stories and how do we start to fill in you know, the conversation that's in the white parts of the page, in between the black letters, you know, the yeah. the white space in between the letters. And, and that part is the of spirit of Midrash, tears. isn't it? Oh, 
That's right. That's okay. right. And so, I mean, literally, like, I love when I'm studying and I cry and I see a teardrop fall into my into my book. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the holiest act because I'm leaving my imprint here, too, because men could have read that for thousands of years and not cried. When I read that, I cry. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. So and now I feel like that's part of being in love that, you know, mm-hmm. sort of really struggling in that way and knowing that something's wrong and that my my partner, this tradition has made mistakes. And, you know, God mm-hmm. knows. So have I. And it's in some ways, you know, it's good to know that the tradition's not perfect. Mm. You've written about um, one of the things that is affected by the High Holy Days as a renegotiated marriage, <laughs> right, between between God and humankind and the, the people right. who are observing this, this these Holy Days. Um, I wonder, if, talk to me about what kind of God and what kind of relationship between humankind and God is made real in you um, through these liturgies and through these these religious ideas behind them? And maybe maybe you can only answer that question for this year because next year it will be different. <laughs> um, I think this idea of I'm very struck by the idea of a renegotiating marriage, which I think um, I heard for the first time from Rabbi Art Green. Just this idea that we. Um, we get to set the marriage back on course. We're periodically given this opportunity um, to to realign um, and to set straight our priorities again and to, to redefine what kind of relationship we even want to be in. Um, with God. I believe with God. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that we need to fix ourselves and God needs to fix God's self also. And there, I mean, there are some incredibly beautiful prayers, a very famous one from um, from Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, the Berdicher Rebbe, who writes this prayer where, where, where he says, you know, God, I did my work this year, but where are you? Mm-hmm. You know, how could you let the world look the way that it does? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is an opportunity for us to look in a really brutal way at ourselves and say, you know, where have I not been the human being I need to be in the world? And where have I let myself down and let other people down and let God down? And also to look at God and say, where are the ways that I feel that I've been let down by God? Because what I believe ultimately the breach, the covenant is about God wanting us to make those demands also. Hmm. God wanting us to hold God to the fire and say, Hmm. like, wait a minute, Hmm. this isn't what you promised. Like, how could you let this person get sick or how could you let this thing happen in the world? And that's okay for us to, you know, to offer that kind of expression to God. God actually wants to be in a relationship like that Hmm. with us. Um, and but we have to do it for ourselves also. I mean, that's you know that's the the the, the first step is to really have the courage and the integrity to look at ourselves and say, God, I've fallen short. You know, I haven't been what I could be in the world. And here you gave me, you know, the the capacity with my mind and my body and my spirit to do extraordinary things in the world. And because of my distractions and my insecurities and my self-doubt and my, you know, and my sins, you know, the things I've done that have just been wrong, I haven't been everything you've wanted in the world. To really start from that place and then grow, you know, to the place where we say, God, and you haven't either. (laughs) And you said mind, body, and spirit. And one thing I've heard about worship in your congregation is that it is full body worship. I mean, you've talked about dancing, and I think Jewish prayer is full body prayer. But I've also heard that you, that people are fully prostrated in, in, um, in your synagogue. And, you know, that's something that's a very ancient practice, but it's a, 
and it and it actually is a practice in many other parts of the world and in other traditions, but it's pretty much lost in Western culture, um, except in Orthodoxy, I suppose. And so, right, talk right. to me about what that means in a, in a very modern congregation in a modern American city. Um, why is that important to you? And what does it do to people? You know, how does it play yeah. into this renegotiated marriage? Um, there was a there was recently a, a terrible tragedy in my community. There was a um, a man who who died, and I was speaking with the family, and and part of the challenge for them was, in, in particular, for the mother was um, not being able to control what was happening because she just wanted to take care of everything and make everything okay, and even, like there was just this recognition that she simply couldn't. There, there was nothing that she could do. Um, to change what had happened and to, you know, and to m- bring this, bring some closure to this any more quickly, you know, than it, than it would come. And I, I thought as I was talking to her, I thought about Alenu, this moment that you're describing in the High Holy Day service where, I mean, this is, this feels so un-Jewish to people, <laughs> when, to the idea of prostrating, like putting your whole body on the ground. Yeah. It feels, it, it just feels like it's, you know, from another tradition and from another time. But it's this idea of recognizing for one moment that we simply cannot control everything. And, and you know, for people who who really spend their days trying to get control over their inbox and control yeah. over their, you know, their work life and control over their kids and control over their the way their bodies, you know, look and the way that, you know, <laughs> the way that everything. We try, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like you don't like the way you look. You get surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't you, you, like we um, we do. We try to exert control over all aspects of our life. And there are just moments when you realize that you just can't control everything everything. And what happens to a person kind of spiritually when they allow themselves to acknowledge that the world is bigger than them Hmm. and that there is, there's sometimes, there's something greater at play than just what we're able to control with our own hands. And the act of putting ourselves down on the ground. And I, you know, when I do it, I hold my hands up to like, my hands are facing upward. It's just saying, I can't do it all. I just can't do like, I, I need you to hold me in this moment because I can't control it. I can't do it. I don't have all the answers. There's this moment of incredible profundity that comes from the recognition that no matter how hard we try, we simply cannot control everything. And I, you know, I tell, I ask everyone to do it. And I say, the more uncomfortable you are with this, the more important it is that you do it because, <laughs> you know, re- spiritual wakefulness does not come from doing the things that feel easy and comfortable to us. It, ju- it just mm-hmm. doesn't. It mm-hmm. comes from really pushing ourselves. Like we get this about physical workouts. I mean, think of physical therapy. Like you aren't going to get better right. if you don't push yourself in a way that hurts. And I, I really believe that, you know, part of my role as a religious, uh, as a, you know, as a spiritual leader is to do it, you know, that that great um, old saying that our job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Yes. And I, I feel like that's, I mean, that's exactly right. That's what we're there to do. And those people who are in mourning and who've suffered loss and who just need to be held, I want to hold them. And those people who just, who, you know, who've created the, you know, who've created the, the, some image or some understanding of their lives as, you know, as perfect and everything's fine. And, you know, that sort of leads to this great complacency. My job is to break them down, you know, to say, get down on the ground and put your hands up in the air and say, I cannot do it. I need help from someone or something bigger than me in the world. And as you say, that flies in the face of so much of the logic of our culture. And, you know, when I was preparing to interview you, I was reading 
just a number of things. And I read a New York Times article, this is from a decade ago, about Benai Jeshurun, the congregation, the really cutting-edge congregation that you were at in New York. And here's what a journalist said, and I think this is one way... Um, you know, it's possible to cover religion as though you're taking it seriously and yet dismiss it at the same time. So, so here's, so here's uh, this journalist said, the reasons for the sudden growth are reflective of the times when baby boomers of all denominations are turning to religion to ease the ragged passage through middle age. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing, though, um, is, is not... Just a, is not about um, is not about making yourself feel better. It, you know, it, it's it's in some ways it's about making yourself feel worse, right? <laughs> and yet you also have an, a, a wonderful, growing, vibrant congregation. So how do you right. explain that? Look, I mean, this kind of dismissive. Um, observation about B'nai Jeshurun, you know, I hear people talk about my generation, um, about people in their 20s and 30s all the time by saying this is the most narcissistic generation in the history of the world. Now, I believe that they probably said that about every generation, but they specifically say it about this one. But if that's true, your congregation should be empty, right? Right, exactly. I mean, uh-huh. they particularly say it because I think because of technology, because of iPods and emails and uh-huh. instant messaging, we do have the My capacity space. now. Yeah, I mean, things that, um, by the way, this is where I noticed the great distinction between, you know, early 30s and late 20s. Like a, a lot of this <laughs> stuff I missed by a couple of years. Okay. But I, I mean, <laughs> but anyway, um, so. I mean, there is, we do. This generation does have the ability to sort of access whatever it wants when it wants it. You know, you don't listen to the radio anymore, kind of, ho- you know, hoping to hear your favorite song. You just download your favorite song, and as soon as you don't like it anymore, you wipe it off your iPod. And you know, it, it's just it's just different. And so, you know, there's this question, like in this generation of kind of instant gratification and instant access, and you know, and real narcissism. How do you, um, you know, how do you move people from a service of the self into a service of the world. And a lot of people just throw their hands up in the air. And really, I will tell you that what I hear over and over and over from the institutional Jewish world is, let's forget about them. They'll come back when they have kids and they need religious school. Hmm. And, you know, there's this kind of, like, throw your hands in the air. They don't want this because they're narcissistic or they want instant gratification. And you don't get that from a serious study of Talmud. You know, it takes, you can study one paragraph for five weeks and you come to the the word (laughs) teku at the end, which means there's no answer. We don't know (laughs) the answer. And like that, this generation... As you know, the the common wisdom is this generation wouldn't go for that, and I and I say you know it's just it's not true. It's simply not true that I mean there is a human need um, that I believe transcends generational differences, transcends time. There's a human need for meaning, for purposeful connection, for community, and for real engagement in the world, and and so it's our choice to you know it's our choice to either create space for that to happen or say, you know, this generation wants something that we can't offer. And so forget about them. Mm. Um, So, I mean, our community, we make, I make demands on our community and I say, I don't even want you to join, you know, there's always this numbers game in the Jewish world. Like how many members do you have? We want more members. And I say, 
don't join this community unless you seriously resonate with the vision and the values of this community, unless you believe that our spiritual and religious lives have a distinct impact on the way that we live as human beings in the world in the pursuit of social justice, you know, unless you are willing to make commitments to increase your Jewish learning and the depth of your Jewish, you know, spiritual and religious life, unless you're willing to make a commitment to engage in the tikkun, in the healing of our city mm-hmm. and of our world, unless you're willing to really explore your relationship with Israel and try and understand what that's all about, and you know, then you can make a commitment to this community, and then we'll have you as members. But if you don't, mm-hmm. we, we're not trying to just get people in here. And you know what? I mean. 80% of our communities in their 20s and 30s like the you know the very right. people who everyone says forget about them they don't have kids yet like the, the people respond to um I, I think that that people respond to you know a serious meaningful high-level conversation about what our purpose and meaning is in the world. Right. It's interesting. Isn't there's kind of a paradox in our time. I mean, I have this experience, too, of having a program about religion which is pitched intellectually high and which originally, mm. even in public radio, people said, this is too dense. This is too serious. It's an hour <laughs> of conversation. You know, people don't have an attention span for that. I, I think mm. both things are true. I mean, I think at the same time that there's this limitless hunger and for and supply of entertainment, mindless entertainment, there's a hunger for depth. And that's mm-hmm. what you're talking that's about. That's right. I, and really... that's what your show does so, I mean, so beautifully. <laughs> no, it's really to... amazing. Like you never, you, I, 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 when I come to the end of your show, I think, my God, the hour's over already. You know, you think it's like four minutes <laughs> oh, because it's that. just, it's like candy. So, <laughs> Well, anyway. and you know, and I have a sense that, you know, just beyond your congregation, you are part of something larger that's happening in Judaism in this country. It is it, right at the beginning of our conversation. You mentioned this, and it's true that there was a, a generation in the '60s and '70s. Um, Buddhism was brought to this country by young Jews, right, <laughs> who had gone to <laughs> India and learned to meditate, and all of the, a lot of the great American Buddhist leaders are Jewish. But now there's this surge in Jewish spirituality, kind of a spiritual mm-hmm. renaissance. And B'nai Jeshurun is part of that, and Rabbi Rachel Cowan's work, I think, is part of that. And yes. Reboot, you're part of that, which is Jewish cultural creatives, these very interesting meetings. And Ikar, which you founded, oh, t- talk to me about that. What do you what do you see yourself as, as part of there? What's happening that might be interesting for other people who are listening to to pay attention to? Well, I do feel that there's a resurgence in Jewish life right now. And I think, you know, it comes in waves and we happen to be in this incredible moment of um, creative opportunity right now. Um, I believe that it is standing at the nexus of spirituality and social justice. I think there's a particular marriage there that is um, that's sort of setting um, you, you know, the Jewish world a little bit on fire right now. Mm. Um, there are organizations like Progressive Jewish Alliance here in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, um, you know, Jewish social justice organizations. And you're right to mention Rabbi Rachel Cowan, this really, this hero of, right. you know, of, of the Jewish world, because she said there, you know, there really is no Jewish spiritual life without a, a depth of under, of understanding of what social justice is and means. And and the rabbis of, of B'nai Jeshurun, there are also many um particularly young Jews who are saying institutional Jewish life is not necessarily the best way for us to 
um, for us to articulate our core commitment as Jews. And so there is um, there's this whole birth of new um, new minyanim, new communities, minyanim meaning small prayer groups, mm. um, communities all around the country. It's happening now, and um, and in a way that it did in the '60s in the Chavura movement. You know, this kind of counter institutional attempt to bring Judaism back to the people and out of the institutions. And mm. I think a lot of people now, particularly my generation, are saying, you know, it's not about the um, you know the beauty of the building that you're in and the how plush the seats are in your sanctuary. Um, it's about the soul of the you know of the community and the spirit and the the way that the liturgy can really drive you know the, drive the community. Um, and so there are incredible communities being born really acro- across the country, and m- many of them are lay led. There are no rabbis at all. Hmm. Um, some of them have you know ha- have rabbis at the helm. They're ve- they're really driven by vision and um, and not by financial resources, which which makes it raises the question: How long will these things last for? Right. Um, you know, we started our community with no money at all and, you know, no space and no chairs and no books. And we just, you know, by by sheer will alone, this community kind of started. And the question is, you know, how long can something like Ikar sustain itself? How long can something like these small, you know, independent minyanim sustain themselves? And um, I was a part of a very interesting conversation um, this past year. Um, it was actually called The Conversation and st- oh. sponsored by uh, um, sponsored by the Jewish Week. And, um, and one of the questions was... Um, can the is the tail wagging the dog in the Jewish world right now? Are these kind of small, you know, scrappy startup venture communities um, really making a broad impact in the institutions? And it's really interesting to think about, you know, the ways like I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do in my service because mm. there's no institution. It's just my board are people who came to Ikar because they believed in, you know, in this vision and they wanted to get, they wanted to have a rabbi who had the freedom to do whatever she wanted to do, you know? Mm. So so no, nothing's stopping me. So I can do whatever I want, right? So so does that sort of open up the possibilities for um, and make and, and allow ideas to start to, you know, flourish that wouldn't necessarily be possible in the institutions that can allow for transformation from within the big institutions as well, which I think is a very interesting right. question. It's it's definitely not only Ikar. I mean, we are part of a, a trend. And I do believe that there's something very interesting to explore about the intersection of social justice and spirituality and how so many of these um, of these groups of people who are really committed to, um, you know, to revitalizing their Jewish lives right now, get that their Jewish lives are, you know, the depth of their religious life is, you know, is um, experienced through their encounter with the rest of the world as well. And and what's interesting, I think, about this is because there's always been, you know, kind of a tikkun olam trend in Jewish life. And mm-hmm. my my life growing up in this synagogue, I mean, we didn't have any religious or spiritual life, but we knew what tikkun olam was, that, you know, sort of <laughs> the, the obligation world. to yes. heal the world and I used to go down to DC and I'd lobby for funding you know for homeless shelters and I did like I I was a good Jew I mean I did like all those that's what I thought that Judaism was that you know that and only that um, there's always been this idea that, uh, that Jews have a certain responsibility and then you know particularly it's flourished in the non-orthodox world um, but I think often at the expense of a real religious experience and a real Jewish experience right. and so what's what I really learned from my rabbis at B'nai Jeshur and I have to say and from rabbis like Rachel Cowan 
um, is that you can so much more effectively fight for social change when it's really rooted in a strong and serious commitment to the tradition, um, you know, to to the writings of our rabbis, to the prophets. When you are, you know, when you're a literate and knowledgeable Jew, you've got thousands of years of tradition standing behind you, and you don't need to make this stuff up because this really <laughs> right. is the ikar of our, this is the essence of our of what our tradition says. And I mean, this is why we called the community ikar, because it was about in some ways trying to strip away um, some of the some of the layers um, that have clouded over what the Jewish mission really is in the world and get back to the fundaments. I mean, it is about the recognition of human dignity in the world for the Jewish people and for all human beings and that God, that there's a God in the world who cares about human beings and wants us to be free but will not do it for us alone that we need to engage in the fight and the struggle for human freedom. Hmm. That's the ikar for me. And so what we wanted to do is create a space for that, you know, for that ideology and for those ideas to really flow in people's, you know, through people's bodies and like, you know, right. as they and sing and dance that and is, cry and That is what your generation is doing is making a connection back to the spiritual life. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating, I think. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, this is really wonderful. And I have other questions I could ask you, but I, I think we've just got so much here. I am going to be quiet for a minute. I know that when we produce this, we're going to love to hear recommendations from you on music. And um, I bet you don't, do you, you don't possibly have sound from your congregation, do you, from worship You services? know what? Do we, you? We actually just recorded our Ooh. first CD. It's oh. Shabbat, but there, I mean, some that of these melodies yeah. will use the That's same. That's great. Um, I can definitely get that to you. Okay. I can definitely get that to you. I want to just, there's one thing that we started that I didn't finish because okay. okay. I got, I went on a different flow and I yeah. wonder if we can just no, get do back that. to that. No, do that. Yes, please. Um, I, when I was, ta- I was talking earlier about this, um, about Unatana Tokev, this incredible climactic prayer, um, the, you know, this incredible prayer that comes in the High Holy Day services. And I, I was saying that, you know, this kind of pushing us to, um, pushing us to engage the the reality of our, the possibility of our own death, who will live and who will die. Um, and I mentioned before, the, you know, the, so, so the prayer offers us three responses. You know, how do you, what do you do once you have this recognition? What do you do so that you don't turn to paralysis, hedonism, or just, you know, or just despair? And the tradition says, tshuva, um, tfila, and tzedakah. Um, these are the three responses that we have to the fragility of life. Um, and tshuva, you know, we talked about earlier, the possibility of transforming the way that we engage other human beings, that we can't control um, if we'll live or die, but we can control the way that we engage other people, and we can control the way that we engage ourselves. And then tefillah, um, prayer, which is we can't control if we'll live and die, but or, or die, but we can control the way that we engage the spirit. Right? We can yeah. we can yeah. decide to see ourselves, you know, alone in a world of chaos, in a world totally out of control, or we can see ourselves as part of this cosmic story, something that's that's bigger than us, but still depends on us, and and we can learn how how to sing and cry and laugh and dance in prayer this year, mm-hmm. um, connecting to something holy. And the final thing is staka. Um, justice that we can't control if we live or die but we can control the way that we engage the world um we can decide if we want to become completely entrenched in our own dramas you know the stories of our own lives um and and refuse to accept that the privileges that we have in our lives as american jews in the 20th century actually comes with real responsibility in the world or we can choose to open up our eyes and our hearts and really 
you know, turn toward people who are just tortured by illness and poverty and violence and, and really make the choice to affirm our role in the world in bringing them love and healing and comfort. And so, I mean, what this prayer basically says is realize that you cannot control if you will live or die, but you can control the way that you're going to live in, you know, over the course of the year. And that's not some vague, you know, mm-hmm. amorphous, you know, like ambiguous statement, like feel good. But it actually means go out and do these three things. Build a spiritual life for yourself. Fix your relationships and fight for justice in the world because ultimately those are the three things that matter in life. Mm. I, I love this um, this this uh, line from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel that I've seen you quote a couple of times. Prayer is our humble answer to the inconceivable surprise mm. of living and insight into the mystery of reality. Beautiful. Yes. And so many people will come into services. So many people walk around in life so aware of what they don't have, you know, what they long for, the love that they haven't found yet, the, Mm. you know, the absence. They're so aware of the absence. And, And what Heschel says to us is, look at the presence, like figure out what you do have. Look at the world with awe and wonder and the amazing miracle that your skin holds the blood inside your body, you know, mm. that, that that nature works the way that it works, that the world is as extraordinary as it is because there's so many things wrong, but there are so many incredible blessings around us. And our part of our spiritual challenge is to, he says, it is gratefulness that makes the soul great. Mm. And so, you know, find a way to be grateful for what we do have because it's simply not fair <laughs> to live in a world and only be conscious of what you do not have. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to be quiet for just a minute while I listen in my headphones. Um, I think we have to finish because we're going to lose our studio, but I'm going to be quiet for just a second. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, I think we're done, but okay. we will be probably sending you some questions, and um, would I know we'd love to see that CD, and also, oh, I would love to share. You know, maybe if there's other music or something that along, the, you know, in terms of sound that you would recommend to us that could just be the layers of this, because you know what we try to do in the show is not just have the conversation but evoke the experiences so and right, you know maybe right. even evoke some of the mystery and so anyway this is just great i love meeting you um uh, like oh, this thank you and, so much Chris. Uh, makes me want to get on the plane and be there for your high holy days <laughs> you're always welcome we oh, would love, love well, to i'd love you. to be there <laughs> okay thanks so, so thank much. you so much yeah. and and um and i i mean I, I guess i'll just find out from your producer or something how to get the music musical tracks yeah to you yeah colleen will write to you and she'll give you all the info and um i you know we're we're producing this for. I think it's going to air the week before. Um, oh, great! I was going to ask so about that actually that. people right is that right? Colleen? So they can hear. Oh, that's we've got great. it. We've got it timed so that people who are actually observing <laughs> Yom Kippur can listen to it. I think um, or Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah, whatever. But it so it's gonna okay. it will happen so that it will coincide. And I hope you know that it can be preparatory for people who are listening. Oh, that's what I was hoping. I was um, going to because originally yeah. they said it was airing on Rosh Hashanah, so I was I, I hoping it could be before. Colleen said, "All right, well." All right, we'll we'll figure it out and we'll write to you. But um, okay, the other thing is, our, I mean, our maps are you know they're sort of available, so I don't oh, know. If it, well, well, we can. Um, yeah, we can tell. We can let people know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, okay. Thank you. I hope thank I'll you meet so you much, sometime. Krista. Yeah. I hope so too. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye.
American Public Media.